If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How was sexuality, gender roles and attitudes to the body influenced by men's experiences in the Second World War? That's something explored in Luke Turner's book, Men at War. And he spoke to Matt Eldon about the stories of some of the men shaped by the conflict and why he thinks that the full range of experiences during war has been obscured by subsequent depictions of it. Your new book, Men at War, explores the Second World War, its place in Britain's, I suppose, psyche, its identity and the role of men within it. I was struck reading it by the fact that there's been so much literature, so much commentary on the Second World War. Do you think that despite that, the role of men and their bodies and their kind of part in this conflict has been overlooked? I think it possibly has on in the way that I wanted to to look at it. I think there's a lot of historians I read, uh, people like Anthony Beaver and James Holland, who really get the personal within the overall picture um, very well. And they, they're able to find uh, characters and, and, and experience explore how they felt and the things they went through um and i think and i think that's a, a change from maybe more traditional history books but i guess i wanted to do something where i wasn't 
quite so constrained by just history. Um, I wanted to look at how men um, experienced, endured, and survived war in in a in a more of a cultural way, and kind of to to interrogate it through a contemporary lens, but also maybe try and put myself in the the the, the mindset or, or imagine imagination of what was back then. So sort of break the rules a little bit. Um, cause I, I just felt it was, it, it was, it was time to consider men in not as modern people. Cause I, I don't, I don't, you know, obviously they're from a totally different time, but just to put this sort of very acute modern, modern lens onto them and to try and do something different with it. And I suppose to almost excavate their stories from simply being these things that happened in the past and have finished, but into being things that are still with us today in some sense. Is is that fair? Absolutely. I mean, particularly, I I, I, th- I think it's I think it's too easy to 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 place, particularly with something like a war where there's a start date and an end date. People say that was the war, and of course you look at it in terms of geopolitics. It it wasn't just the war. That was part of not just 20th century, but pre-20th century history. And, and we're still obviously seeing the legacy of the Second World War happening today. So if the history doesn't exist in these neat little packages, I felt that masculinity doesn't exist in these neat, neat little packages either. These men during 1939 to 1945 period of conflict, things changed for them very quickly and their lives were upended. But there, that masculinity is part of continuum. It was, a, as some of the people I um, use as sources in the book say, it was a radical time that had shifted society massively. It might not have seen that because of the way the 1950s are seen as very conservative, but my argument is almost even that the Second World War was more radical than the 60s in terms of sexual liberation. It's definitely in terms of um, liberation, sexual liberation for gay men who are somewhat written out of the 1960s sexual freedom narrative. Their moment came in more in the 70s with gay liberation. So I wanted wanted to think, well, maybe actually the Second World War was more universal in its its loosening of uh, sexual uh, boundaries than even the 60s, which often seems to me to be like a, a kind of cultural elite. Things were three or four in some ways. So but then again, that's all part of an ebb and a flow, and it's it's not just this confined period of five years. It's it, of six years. It's it's something that is part of who we are today because we had to go through that to get to where we are today. And I suppose also because the war has had such a long cultural and political shadow. Um, you talk a lot in the book about your own experiences, your own fascination with the war. When did that start? I mean, this is the thing I, I wonder about. As I write in the book, I wasn't allowed guns. I came from a very Christian family. My mum, my my granddad on my mum's side was a conscientious objector. Like war was just not something that was part of our family uh, experience. But I was always obsessed with it. You know, the picking up sticks to shoot them, as I write about in the book. And then as soon as Lego came along and toys, it was making war machines. Um, and then being into model aeroplanes. And I, I just... I, I don't remember a particular eureka moment. I do remember that the, the kind of menacing side of war as the book starts with seeing these these Jaguar fighter jets blasting over the cottage where we went on holiday in Norfolk every year. Um, so it's just this sort of thing that was all around me. And I think that's that's because it it is so much part of British culture. Um Obviously, I my, in my, some of my earlier years, there was the Falklands, and that is definitely one of my earliest memories is news reports about the Falklands. So I guess there was a consciousness of war. 
And then the Second World War must have just leaked in through these sort of cultural reference points and that thing where kids are drawn to machines, wheels, stuff that flies. My little boy's 13 months old. One of his first things he can say is whenever he sees a wheeled vehicle is brum, brum, you know. Um, so obviously had a mechanical fascination that's common to small, small children. And I think it all just went from there. And I think it's interesting that kind of love of steam trains, ships and so on, that was the earliest thing, then became more martial. But I've still, I'm obviously racking my brains writing this book, thinking, was there a Eureka moment? And there wasn't really. It was just this sort of odd cultural osmosis, I think. But it's interesting you mentioned machinery there. Do you think the fascination with machinery of hardware in this war is one of the factors that has obscured the men doing the fighting? I think it has. I think, you know, the 20th century wars were the first wars with proper fighting machines. Obviously, they'd, they'd been devices in conflict um, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But the real mechanical metal enclosure uh, I think is the key thing. That's why I wrote, wanted to write that chapter on metal in the book, because I'm fascinated by the idea of metal as this material that encases the body or various bodies in a tank or or a bomber or or, um, or a ship. And I think I think that very much has 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 obscured the men. They're not individuals fighting on the battlefield so much a lot of the time. They are. We can see them in these machines. Obviously, the toy industry then exploited these machines by selling reproductions and i think that affects part of it and they do just look brilliant and cool and exciting and they still give me a thrill after after all these years and i can't escape that one of the threads of your book is to recenter the corporeality of men um and as you mentioned you've got a whole range of case studies one of them is of henry danton who i think writes quite movingly about about men and their bodies um can you talk a bit about his his story i suppose yeah, I felt so privileged to to get to tell Henry Danton's story. I it was kind of weirdly related to the metal chapter in that I was researching metal shortages and I found that there was this ballet dancer who never been awarded a medal he was due in the 1940s due to uh, metal being in short supply and he'd finally got the medal a few years ago. And I thought, well, who is this guy who was a ballet dancer during the war and it turned out it's this Henry Danton. And he did a, an interview when he was talking about the do, doing in being in Swan Lake and a, a doodle bug V1 rocket come down and interrupted performance. And I thought, I really want to talk to him because he sounds interesting. And I got in touch with his school where he still taught, aged 101 over in America. And they put me in touch with him. And I had this just incredibly moving conversation with him on his iPad. Uh, like waving his iPad around, I kept seeing the ceiling and then his the top of his head. And he was just this beautiful, lovely, well-spoken, kind of transatlantic accent man. And his story really was the thing that opened the book up because he, he, had, his dad had died in the First World War before he was even born. So he'd got he'd gone to private school funded by the military for orphans of uh, or children of deceased servicemen. And he, his whole life was geared up to be making him a soldier. And he eventually went into the army, but just before the war, pretty much had some kind of breakdown and, and lost his troops on Salisbury Plain. He couldn't, couldn't fight. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. And he couldn't specifically bayonet a sack and he couldn't contemplate shooting another man. And he had those army panels um, assessing his mental health and so on. And eventually he was discharged from the army and became a ballet dancer. Um, 
and he was a dancer during the war and went on to be very successful. And I thought he was fascinating because he actually said something quite positive about how, in a way, about how Britain fought the war in that, you know, he wasn't shot. He was allowed to leave the army. Um, but it was also interesting that he said he wasn't a conscious, he was adamant, like one of the most adamant things he said, I was not a conscious subjector. I, I didn't think it was wrong to fight. I just couldn't. And I just thought that was such a nuanced uh, expression of, of masculinity. One that I think a lot of people would say, well, he was just a coward. Um, but having had that conversation with him, I don't believe he was. I think he was a, he was a very courageous man who was very aware of his body. He was very aware of other people. He was a very caring man. He was just this sort of unique figure who just seems so different from either a conscientious objector or a martial figure or somebody who was just sort of in the army doing their bit. Um, and I felt very privileged to speak to him. And he, he sadly died. Well, sadly died. He he was he had a good, a great life and was dancing up until the end, which is a beautiful thought. But yeah, you know, he died last year, and I was I just feel really privileged to have got to to, to speak to him and to to include his story in the book. It's striking that, as you've just said, he was able to to not fight. Do you think that tells us something about the range of masculine identities that were available to men during this period? Do you think it's been flattened in subsequent decades? Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a huge breadth of of masculinity, and we tend to. I think we either tend to see the kind of, you know, I loved SAS Rogue Heroes, for instance, and that, but that was a particular kind of masculinity. And those men were, you know, a particular kind of masculinity. They were they were tough. They were aggressive, very capable of killing people. Even within their masculinity, of course, they were very different. Jock Lewis was very different from Paddy Main, and 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 uh, and uh, so on. But I think. Maybe in culture, we've either thought of them as these kind of warrior figures or the quiet men doing their bits and just getting along, rather than this just richness where every single, every single, there's millions of these men and they're all just these tiny individuals. And what struck me was that every person I lighted on was fascinating, even the more ordinary ones, the, the few veterans I got to speak to. Each one had a fascinating narrative that, that I didn't really include in the books. It did didn't quite fit in terms of what I was trying to do. And then finding my granddad's letters back from working on the railways in uh, Sierra Leone in, and just seeing, I never knew him. So it was fascinating he come to life and the people he mentioned speaking to. And it's just sort of like you could, you could, there's so many stories still out there. I don't think we've told all the stories of the war. People often say, oh God, everyone's going about the war again. It's like, no, we, we just, it, it's, it's not the case. There's just so many of these fascinating stories and these very human, very humble, and sometimes very modern stories that that haven't necessarily been told and are richer than perhaps we perceive them or certain elements in the media and politics like to present that generation, I think. We should talk about your granddad. What did you find out about his story and what does that tell us about these these wider themes? Well, I mean, that was, that was the thing that when I was growing up, like one of my granddads was a conscientious objector, which I was a bit unsure about um and my other granddad um worked on the railways in um Sierra Leone and I always thought oh I wish my granddad had been a soldier or a pilot and had done all this exciting stuff like my friend's granddad and then um my dad found a load of letters uh, that he'd written back from West Africa in the war and and it was incredible really just seeing and he was quite old for the you know being a soldier he was 34 when he um enlisted and he was in a reserved occupation because he worked on the railways so and i think that's very interesting um 
that they say on his form he was relegated to class W-R-E-S. And I think that use of relegated to reserved occupation really sets a hierarchy of the servicemen and the reserved occupation. Um, and through him, I just found this this sort of quite sensitive person who re- the war had really come and disrupted his life and he was trying to make sense of it and saying, you know, I hope I can learn something. I hope I can do something useful. Um, and it was it was just this... It's very odd when it's somebody who's that close to you in terms of age, but you've never met, but he just came alive for me. And and it's really funny and just ordinary as well, like his excitement of being on this luxury liner, taking him out to um, to Sierra Leone, which actually was torpedoed just after it left. So he had a, he had a lucky escape. Um, and then kind of on the last night on the boat, him and a load of the railway men and a load of Navy lads all, all get absolutely pissed and are singing songs, that he, you know, bawdy Navy songs. And he has a hangover, but he says, oh, the next day, I was really worth it. Sometimes you have to do it. And I love that. It was just like, I could imagine, you know, doing that, being on the ship going, oh, has anyone got any more beers? Oh, yeah, we can go and find some more. You know, it was it was just great. I, I and, and I think, you know, that's my granddad. Everyone's granddads uh, or great uncles or and grandmas as well. Let's not forget they, they all, many of them were also involved in the war. They all had these unique stories just hiding in letters. And perhaps some of these stories away from the battlefields or away from squadrons or so on, like my granddad's working on the railways, training people in how to sort of signal and all of this sort of stuff. Um, perhaps some of those stories give us a new insight into the war. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. 
And it's interesting you make the point there about the age, because I, I think you write in the book that one of the sort of accidental byproducts of memorialization is we tend to see these people as old people because that's the case that they are now or have been when they've been telling their stories. Do you think we need to factor in youth as a, a part of this story? Yeah, and I, I, I really sort of struggle. I don't know whether it's just me sometimes that just imagines all the wartime people as already old. It's It was something that I, I write about right at the start of the book because it was it was just was like that. They always, in my mind, they were always old men, but they, they weren't. You know, my granddad that was saying he's in his 30s and he's talking on the boat out there to somebody who's posh and way younger than him. And he's sort of saying, you know, wow, this this guy's young. He's from a different world. He's different class, but we still had something in, in common. Um, and I think I think films these days tend to make more of the youth. I think of something like Dunkirk or 1917. They seem really young in that film, um, in those films. Come and see that I write about the book, the, the Soviet film, the, the main character is very young. But I, from what I remember of you know all the war films I watched obsessively as a kid, a lot of those actors were a bit older, you know. Um, and I think Dad's Army is part of it because it's like the whole joke is it's Dad's Army and it's the Home Guard, so it tended to be older people. But that was the main thing on telly that had people in uniforms, so you kind of project that into the rest of the army. Weirdly, like there was Dad's Army was on more than anything else, so I think you end that. There's a sort of creep there where it's suddenly. Suddenly, like everybody starts being like Captain Mannering, even in the wider military, there's a cross contamination. Someone else who you write about in the book who was incredibly young when he died was Ian Gleed. Can you tell us about his story and, and what that tells us? Yeah, I mean, he's he's a real fascinating, and you know, I, I even had a bit of a dialogue with myself about whether to include him because he he was a, a, a fighter pilot, a classic sort of. Battle of Britain, quite posh, uh, shot down the Germans, wrote a book about the experiences in the Battle of France, the Battle of Britain, where everything's wizard and good show and like flying around going brap, 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 brap at the Germans. And uh, he got decorated at the the palace at the same time as people like Richard Hillary. Um, He had a DSO, DFC, Croix de Guerre, you know, a real archetypal hero of the war um, and was shot down in the Mediterranean. when he was stationed over there, he after being on a desk job, he wanted to go back into action and was killed. And he, no one would have thought anything other than he was a outstanding pilot who died tragically long, young until a program called "It's Not Unusual" was broadcast in the late nineties, where another pilot talked about having sex with him uh, and that he'd had a gay affair with him, and that you know, in some ways is quite controversial. He was outed after his death. Who knows how private he was about his sexuality? Is it right to do that? So I was, I had two minds about putting him in, but then, you know, it is out there. It's in the public domain. He was, he was gay. And then reading his memoir, where there's this uh, Pam, his partner, who he writes about being in love with Pam and telephoning Pam and sailing in his boat, the Spindrift with Pam. Um, uh, this female character who, when his family read the book, were like, who is this Pam? We've never even heard of her, even though we supposedly met her. And it turns out in his biography, there's a younger man who he uh, fulfills that role. So sailing in a spindrift isn't Pam, it's somebody else. And I didn't use their name because that person went on to have wife and child and children. And I, I was like, I'm not going to out them. So I use a letter instead, call them T. 
Um, but what I found interesting about Ian Gleed is he had this this of what seems to be a lover tea. And when he was on his RAF service, he he had a, a, a jolly good idea, which was set up an airbase in the Scilly Isles, so to be able to intercept the Germans more quick, more quickly when they were coming over. So he went took his unit down to the Scilly Isles, and meanwhile he would borrow a Tiger Moth two seater biplane and fly back to England uh, to the mainland to pick up T, his friend. Uh, and and then dress him in an RAF uniform and flying back and they'd go sailing around the Scilly Isles and I just thought hit the rest of his unit must have known what was going on I mean you don't fly a tiger moth during the war back home to pick someone up for a presumably stay in your quarters and I just thought that, that, that there's a whole story there uh, and and a hidden narrative a, a sort of complicity maybe among the fellow fellow pilots at ground crew in that unit what did they think did they approve did they not care was there actually a lot of tolerance um around because it was wartime or perhaps people are more tolerant than we assume and so there was just all these layers with Ian Glee that I I thought were, were absolutely fascinating in terms of uh where people were sat with with sexuality and and also this idea that you know the homophobic idea that gay people can't be warriors, you know, gay, gay men, uh, which, which I grew up, I grew up with in the sort of eighties, nineties. The idea was gay men were effeminate, like a right in the book. I mean, I love Kenneth Williams. He's a personal hero and I love Quentin, Qu- Quentin Crisp, both of whom are in the book, but they, they were perceived as sort of effeminate camp men, not warriors. But you hear you have a man who was gay and shot down loads of German aircraft, was very brave, hard as nails. And I thought that was really interesting to kind of go, actually, you know, particularly as homophobia returns and, and, and well, not returns, but is, is becoming more virulent again. I think some of these, these ideas still exist in male society or male um, group think that gay men are weak. And I wanted to say, well, no, they can be gay men or warriors just as much as anyone else. And, and in something like Second World War, where you're fighting Nazism, which persecuted gay men probably you're going to fight harder than than your comrades sometimes do we get a sense of how gay and bisexual men were regarded at the time was there that link between cowardice and inverted commas and sexuality i mean that's the stuff that is was very hard to quantify because you're going off what the gay and bisexual man who left the record said if you're going off prosecutions um there's a historian who looked into the number of prosecutions during of, of gay and bisexual men during the Second World War, and there were less than two thousand court martials in the military. Which, when you've got millions of men, is striking. I think that's a very low number. So I feel that there was a level a level of tolerance, and maybe people quickly realized maybe they knew who was gay in their units because it maybe is, was hard to hide or. People got an inkling of it, and they realised that those men did fight as well as they can. I think that goes beyond sexuality, though. I think certain types of men assume that they would be the bold ones in a war, and they'd be tough, and they they are the macho men, and they would be able to perform in that way. And I've often wondered if actually sometimes those men who perform a tough and in inverted commas masculinity might have been the first to go to pieces or, or useless whereas other men who are assumed to not be so strong that might be the moment that makes them and they're they're incredibly brave and able to do incredible things 
that idea of, of performance is really interesting. Did the outbreak of war allow men to toy with or experience new gender roles? I think it must have done for some. I think this whole idea of being put into a uniform I find really interesting because then you are performing the role of a soldier, sailor, airman. And um, with the RAF, it did seem a lot of the people in whose memoirs I read, Bomber Command or Fighter Command, they really went into it because they thought they saw recruitment pictures and didn't the pilots look dashing and this was a form of masculinity. You know, you instantly were bang, you were one of the Brill Cream boys. You were you had a sort of higher status as a as a, in, in masculinity. And um one of one of the pilots I write about from 158 Squadron talks about how the uh, attrition rate in bomber command had given a sort of macabre uh, eroticism to bomber pilots and they were kind of sexy because they were so likely to be killed. Uh, their masculinity was sort of heightened by that. So I, I, I think it, I think it very much did. Um, and it was interesting as well, like Quentin Crisp writes about how all the women in London have suddenly gone butch uh, because th- th- they're joining things like the ATS and the WAFs or whatever. And some of them are wearing trousers or in fact, in, in, they're in factories and Quentin Crisp was very effeminate and later in life, said he thought he was trans, noticed that the, the women's had performed a new gender role and they were, they yeah, this idea of becoming, becoming butch. And I think, you know, Enid Baraud, who I write about in the book, who identified really as a man, but in, I refer to her as she because that's what she did at the time, though it seems that when she was in the um, Women's Land Army, she was called John. But I think the war really enabled her to, before, but be, well, because no, I, I don't think she was performing about. She was being her m- m- more male side, so she w- left her job in a clerk's office where she hated it, and went out to the countryside to be in the women's land army and dressed as a man, looked like a man, lived with her female lover, and it, she did have that freedom to to be her more male self. So I think it went that way for everyone. But I, I, I just love this idea that the kind of the uniform is supposed to make you be one perform one kind of military masculinity but within that everybody's kind of messing with it and doing things a bit differently there's another character um in your book who we should talk about who is roberta cowell Mm. um what what do you think their story tells us about this period i mean i think roberta cowell's story is incredibly unique but the re i mean the reason i mean to give a bit of background roberta cowell was um before she transitioned, Robert Cowell was a very aggressive man into motor racing, extremely homophobic, became a pilot, did two tours of operation, was eventually shot down, became a POW, and really hated all the cross-dressing that went on in prisoner of war camps. Then came back home and had a bit of a break, had a breakdown, um, and after psychiatric assessment realised that she was in the wrong body he was in the, I, again with the pronouns i really kept to what roberta cow wrote which was he and then she so i'll do the same here but he wrote about how he was in the wrong body and he realized he had female characteristics so that was a very interesting personal and, and sort of individual narrative around a shift in gender and the idea of of transgenderism but what I found so fascinating was that it was the war that had enab- that enables Roberta Cal to exist because 
the surgery used, the vaginoplasty surgery that enabled her transition was completely derived from uh, repairing men uh, by uh, Archibald uh, Bakindo and others. The surgery that they were using on people like Richard Hillary to re to reconstruct faces or soldiers who had genital wounds was then used to enable a woman to be her true self. And I just find that kind of beautiful that this quite this this something that is entirely of the war in a medical technique has has created something that is is very modern and right at the heart of how people are able to transition now. I mean it's still the same technique, the Makindo technique is still still used for 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 trans women. So I just thought that was an incredible narrative that again brings the war right into the current moment in a way that we perhaps haven't uh, known and, and is a very new new thing to to think about. You mentioned something which we we should definitely talk about there, which is cross-dressing in prisoner of war camps. Why was that a thing, and what happened? What happened there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, uh, that's I mean, it's it's kind of quite ribald and fruity, and I I really love it. There's all sorts of pictures if you just go on Google image sets. There's all these sort of jolly pictures of like these incredible theatre sets where they made like, like kind of proper backdrops in Colditz or wherever, and there's all these fellas dressed in skirts with that prop, really lovely outfits and suspenders, and they're all doing dances and. And everybody's just having clearly having an absolute hoot about this. So there's obviously the kind of thing where it's like starved from female company for such a long time. A man dressed as a woman was erotic enough to to fulfil heterosexual lust. That's the sort of basic way of looking at it. And there is this amazing quote where uh, someone in a prisoner of war camp wrote something, I, I paraphrase, but I caught Corporal so-and-so did such a stunning performance of comely femininity that one wanted to go to the lavatory afterwards and have a think which I just that was just incredible that line I loved it but on the other hand I think there is something deeper at play where it's it's not just wanting to see a femininity it's like did men actually find a way of expressing a more fluid gender identity was there something more playful about and and meaningful about this cross-dressing. Um, in Yes, Farewell, the Mickey Byrne novel, there's the uh, character called Masterman, which is such a great male name for the cross-dresser, who by the end of the time he called it, is kind of inhabiting this, this the woman who he ha had played, you, you know, the, the female character he brought out for theatricals, is more, he sort of moved into that character more. And I, and I just wonder whether, like I write about the war-enabled supposedly straight men to explore their true bisexuality for a while whether the cross-dressing also enabled men to sort of melt their masculinity in their, in in how they dressed and 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 so on but i i and i think there was a, there was just so much it was it was it was sort of playful and i wonder if it was also quite profound for some men for these men who were finding new ways to explore their sexuality, what opportunities and, I suppose, risks were there? I mean, the main risk was that it was illegal and you could get put in prison and court-martials, court-martial dismissed from the services, humiliation, blackmail. It was horrible. I mean, that's that's what I, you, you can never lose sight of, is the persecution of gay and bisexual men. And I always include bisexual men because if you were arrested in a public toilet with another man you were in the eyes of a law a, a gay man so you know you, you were going to get 
persecuted as much as anybody else. Um, so I think the risks were were huge. And obviously you've got venereal disease and the prospect if you were caught, then you'd have very invasive medical examinations because the military forces were obsessed with who was the sort of the active and passive role in terms of prosecuting. So there, there was there was a huge and profound risk, but there was so much of it going on. So I wonder if the official risk, the arrest, the criminalization of sex, the court martials and so on, was a was the kind of big surface risk, but perhaps among individual units and individual men, the risk of humiliation and discovery was a little bit less because of this some kind of tolerance you know maybe in probably depended on your unit where you were in the world what you know who the commanding officer was but i i wonder if the risk of being discovered by your comrades was perhaps reduced but it, again it's a very difficult thing to quantify apart from some of the gay men writing about this the gay and bisexual men writing about this stuff suggest that that's that was the case that there was a sort of blind eye turn to it because quite a lot of people who were supposedly straight were having little bits and pieces on the on the sly i was really struck by some of the accounts in your book in which it almost seems that in some institutions it was just normalized but i suppose that doesn't give us a true indication of how widespread that normalization was no i i i don't think it does it's almost and it's also how was it like, you know, Dudley Cave writes about how in the Japanese prisoner of war camps, there was one soldier who was sort of almost, I think, sort of gender fluid and answered to a female name and had the catchphrase, ooh, look at the size of that thing that she always brought out in camp entertainments and you knew you could go into the mangrove swamp and have a bit of a thing with her or him. But the blurring of, of the gender roles there means, you know, what? how was that perceived by by these soldiers what, what did they see themselves as as that was a homosexual act or not again it's just all very it's also so slippery really given this slipperiness and the diversity of some of these identities and experiences we've talked about what happened after the second world war ended did things go back to the way they were or did some of these new opportunities and freedoms stay i'm not i think i think they ended up from from the people i used as uh, characters and and Colin Spencer, who is a bisexual writer and artist I spoke to, I think things got worse. I mean, Dudley Cave wrote about how before the war he really didn't feel there was much of an issue with his being gay. He had sort of affairs with people he worked with and so on. But after the war, he was sacked from his job uh, for being gay. Um, you know, the prosecutions for, of gay men went up and up and up in the 1950s. There were huge scandals. Uh, from the testimony of all, pretty much every single source I read, mass observation to diaries and and so on, the the level of repression was 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 horrible for people. Um, you know, and the people spoke of the war as being a bit of a a happy time to be to be gay or bisexual, whereas afterwards the the repression was was appalling. Um, this this conservatism and sort of gloom that sunk over Britain in the 1950s. There's another aspect to corporeality that we haven't touched on, which is the fact that these men had seen 
people die, they'd come in to have near-death experiences. How did this shape their view of their bodies, their masculinity, I suppose? I think it's really interesting with that because in some ways that that was sometimes connected to sex and sexuality. And that David Holbrook's um, autobiographical novel, Flesh Wounds, about being a tank commander uh, after D-Day, he sort of manages in this really vivid, macabre, but quite beautiful way, equates the sight of seeing burned dead bodies lined up beside destroyed tanks with the loss of virginity. So these two significant moments in men's life, like an encounter with death and the loss of virginity, are kind of the same because of it's, it's such a physical uh, a, a physical experience. And I, and I thought that was really quite profound, the way he, he did that. Um, but you can't... I, th- I think it's interesting when, when we think about the male body and death in war because since that Saving Private Ryan opening sequence where you see people's legs being blown off and then guts coming out and all this stuff it's become like this sort of schlocky thing I I felt like watching the Brad Pitt tank film Fury you can do any gore you like now in a war film Um, and we've almost gone from the old school war film where people sort of went and fell over or just had a bit of ketchup appear on them to the opposite which is this sort of like grotesquerie and 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 gore and it's I mean between those two things is just this the actual horror of it, you know, the things like when pilots were flying over the Falaise Gap after the Germans were encircled and the, you know, wiped out in air attacks, they could smell burning flesh even from hundreds and thousands of feet up. Things like that, which almost, you know, are, are, is that the is that the kind of is that the stuff that's we as civilians now, no matter how much we study it, no matter how much special effects try and do it in war fields, that's the bit we could never understand what it is to see somebody uh, who has been hit by shrapnel or look into a tank where people have been burned to death. You know, these things that, by and large, even if we see them on social media now from the Ukraine war, which uh, you you can do, there's, you know, really horrific stuff I've just seen on Twitter feeds or whatever, that's still not the same as being there and experiencing it. And I think for the men in the Second World War who did experience it and men who still are now it's something utterly unique to them that the rest of us could never really imagine do you think that our failure to sort of fully engage with the complexity and the diversity of some of the stories we talked about today has repercussions in the present i think it does because it allows a very narrow interpretation of the second world war that it was a sort of jingoistic britain first bold britain pluckily going alone which then obviously fed very much into the Brexit narrative that Britain was better off outside the EU. Um, And a lot of war rhetoric was used by the people who wanted to leave the EU. Um, There was constant sort of summonings of uh, various war films, Nigel Farage going around in a bus playing the theme from The Great Escape. It, it, the war became this sort of very useful tool to say, look, look what happened when Britain was last alone. It, it was all, all went swimmingly, which, of course, is nonsense because we had a gigantic empire, a huge royal navy, managed to persuade the Americans to get involved, and were allied with the Soviet Union. I mean, it, it was it was us and a lot of other people, and you know, people were very aware of that at the time. And it's become a myth that is endured and been exploited by the right wing. 
since. And the same went for COVID with the idea of summoning the blitz spirit and that make COVID go away. Even though it's a completely different situation, you can't shoot COVID. Uh, you know, people, these people say, why? Well, the pubs were open in the war. Why are they not open now? This is ridiculous. You know, you can go to the pub of your own free will in an air raid and you might get hit by a bomb. You can go to co- pub and catch COVID and spread it. And it's a totally, totally different thing. So I just got very frustrated where the sort of narrowing of perception of the people who'd served in the war seemed to, uh, to, to kind of this like Captain Tom, quiet old boy going up and down his garden. That seemed to be a very narrow interpretation of the war that was then able to be used by the right or more reactionary political groupings or forces. And that sort of ignored all this sort of slippery masculinity, the sort of bawdy sexuality, the 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 queerness that had seemed to have thrived. And I just wanted to slightly, not, slightly say, hang on, the war was more complicated than, than, than something that we can use to boost a particularly jingoistic idea of Britain today. Do you think that the, the specific ways in which we've come to remember the war have caused problems? Or do you think there's ways in which we should perhaps look at it with new with new eyes? I think remembrance is a lot more complicated than it can appear in these sort of endless arguments about so-and-so is not wearing a poppy, you should wear a poppy, you don't have to wear a poppy. Uh, I always wear a poppy these days. Um, I think... The Bomber Command Squadron I write about, 158 Squadron, who were based mainly at RAF Lisset in East Yorkshire, I find them an incredibly powerful story because they were they were so brave, the men who flew in Bomber Command. Obviously, some of the tactics were controversial, but there's no denying those men were very brave. And that squadron's very interesting because they left a huge written legacy behind, which I write about in the book. And there's something about the way that Remembrance is conducted by the Squadron Association um, that I find really powerful. And and that was originally set up by the former air crew. They'd have an annual reunion and a service. And I went up in 2021 20, um, for the first service and reunion after uh, COVID. Um, and we did the, right on the edge of the old airfield. There was a, a, a service, which was very powerful. And then we went to a hotel in Brislington and had a really good buffet and there were speeches and so on and kind of as the day went on I realized there was no airmen there um and it turned out it was the first one where there hadn't been any servicemen present any veterans there were a few still alive but they didn't feel well enough to travel or they were worried about COVID and so the the, the association was at a, a crossroads where they do they carry on or do they not and I think the way they did remembrance, like the service was was very simple, very very powerful. The way that the archivists are collating material and building biographies of these airmen is 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 really powerful. Uh, and the way that they've got a memorial out the edge of the airfield, which is this I write about in the book because it's such a beautiful structure. It's a it's cut out of steel and it has the shape of the seven airmen of the Halifax crew, bomber crew. And it's got the names of everyone who died etched into the memorial. And you're there on the edge of the airfield, right under where they took off on operations. And it's just this very simple, quiet little intervention into the landscape that, to my mind, combined with the sensitivity of the of the people who in the in the, um, in, the in the squadron association, the descendants of those who flew, seems a lot more. Um, 
a, a lot less in danger of being co-opted into something martial or political, like the actual Bomber Command Memorial in Green Park, which I find very overbearing and too grand and too too macho. The figures of the airmen, these huge sculpted figures there, and this sort of, apart from one of them who looks distressed, but the rest of them are these like, that seven-foot-tall supermen. And, and I kind of think that, the 158 Squadron, the way they remember the men, their relatives who flew, the way this memorial sits, actually sort of points to a, a way that perhaps we could look to the war in the future. You know, this, as well as my kind of idea, which is we explore the sexuality and the and the complicatedness and the queerness. I did. I also believe it's very important that we we also look in the, a more traditional way of remembrance, and and that 158 Squadron association do it very well and very sensitively and I, I i think it's really beautiful i kind of hope they continue with their work i think it's fascinating that was luke turner men at war loving lusting fighting remembering 1939 to 1945 is out now published by weidenfeld and nicholson for plenty more takes on the second world war head to our website historyextra.com Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.